Well, hello, all you beautiful homesteaders, land lovers, and future farmers. Today, we take a deep dive into another farmer's world. I'm interviewing author, writer, farm life humorist, Heather Benson of Delarna Farm in Minnesota, USA. Among other things, we hear about her thoughts on continuous experimentation, the phenomena she calls stacking bales, solving for X, and how she moved her entire farm from one state to another, and still survives annual bouts of what she calls lamnesia. So I'm Judith Farrell Horvath, head leadership at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio. I started with illegal backyard chickens while at my white collar job, lived a dual life for eight years, finally got busted, and our family made the leap to farm life. That was 10 years ago, and we are still loving it. Here we talk about the experience of the startup, the steep learning curve that goes with adopting a farm fresh lifestyle. I share stories and we all talk about what it feels like when you don't even know what you don't know. My mission is to help you sidestep avoidable errors and unnecessary costs or losses as you journey towards your dream of having a farm life. I tell it like it is based on my experience in order to help you learn from my fails, sidestep common errors and avoid unnecessary costs or losses as you travel on your own personal journey. And yes, it is worth it. And now, enjoy the interview. Hello, Heather. Nice to see you and have you here. I'm so happy to have you and a warm welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here especially on uh, it is a very cold and windy afternoon in Minnesota so I'm much happier being indoors today oh my gosh I don't know how you do it living up there I don't know how you do it oh well I I'm the person who can barely survive summer so I I I find (laughs) a relief in cold weather um and and the rest it provides and then I'm the person who thinks she's dying in July so Maybe it's best that you are in Minnesota then. My goodness. I, I can't, I can't imagine. I have family who lives in Minnesota and they tell me stories of winter and I'm like being in Ohio. Oh, da, 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 da. no, 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 no. Thank you. And you know what? They even tell stories. They even tell, they even tell like these crazy jokes and these crazy stories, like, like the Minnesotans make fun of other Minnesotans and the life of Minnesota and what misery it is with the winter. They're like, you know, 60 days of summer or something like that. Southern Minnesota compared to Northern Minnesota, because the state is very longitudinally tall, right? So International Falls, which is the northernmost point of the continental U.S., is a totally, I think it's two, like if you think about growing zones, you know, like you do for your garden, I think it's two climate zones different than Southern Minnesota. It's, so to be a Minnesotan is also a variable degrees within Minnesota. That's interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but now that you've explained it, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So why don't you talk a little bit about yourself and what you do and what is Delarna Farm and who is Heather Benson and go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. All right. Well, um, I'm Heather Benson. If you follow, uh, a lot of people don't know my name, but I know there's a fair amount of people who know my farm, which is Delarna Farm. Uh, we as an actual farmer, uh, what we raise right now is Icelandic sheep, but we have all manner of animals that are left over from other pursuits are just bad ideas that came into my head one day and then they stay. 
at, at this stage of my farm career, I have settled on the fact, well, the sheep at least pay their own bills and the hay bill of, you know, some of the other less useful creatures. Uh, really the, the harvest, if you will, that I get from my farm is the absolutely ridiculous stories that come out of farm life. And, and that's really what my page ends up being all about. And, and hopefully I, I say the only paid thing I'll ever get to sell from this is hopefully a book someday, but we'll see if that ever comes to fruition. But, uh, I, well, as noted, I currently live in Minnesota, literally just inside the state line. I am like 1200 feet inside the Minnesota state line from South Dakota, but until August of 2022, I'm both originally from South Dakota and that's where Delarno was formerly based and actually named for the homesteaders who uh, homesteaded the farm that uh, we originally owned, uh, which is was in southeastern South Dakota in a place where a whole bunch of people from Dalarna in Sweden came. Oh. Um, the homesteaders tend to come in large groups to one geographic region. Mm -hmm and uh, settled right there. And I thought that was uh, a, a really great name. It just sounds cool. And then when I found out more that the region was known for raising horses and pigs, which is actually what we started with on our farm. Mm -hmm. like, All right, Delarna it is. Nice, nice. So um, you mentioned the Icelandic sheep. How do you, how do you raise them? What's, what's the structure like around them? What, what is your, what is your well, management method? It should be noted that I originally got sheep uh, because the way our old farm and actually our new farm for that matter, and probably most people's farms, is the farmyard, you know, the part that isn't a pasture or the vegetable garden, was almost an acre. And I had two summers of, uh, as noted earlier, I don't, I don't enjoy hot weather. So I had two summers of mowing in the hot weather. And I was like, I don't want to mow. This is terrible. I am not going to mow this lawn anymore. And so I decided we would uh, go old school. What They literally used to keep um, the White House lawn and the grass under the Eiffel Tower trimmed with sheep. Um, by pure happenstance. Well, I shouldn't say that. I, I started you know, perusing Craigslist and Facebook. So I was like, I, I want sheep, but I, I want something cool. And that really just meant anything than what I grew up looking at in the 4-H barns. You know, I didn't want co commercial sheep. I wanted something interesting. And, and then uh, one of the very first ads I saw was someone's uh, dispersing their very small flock of Icelandic sheep. And I knew what they were. I'd been researching my breeds. And I'm like, yes, Viking sheep. They might not be Swedish, but uh, they're still from that Scandinavian realm. Um, and so uh, I, I remember... They, it was three ewes and a ram, and I was so worked up about getting them that someone else would take them, that I, I left with my daughter at the time, I think was three. We left and did this whirlwind tour of like a seven hour drive in one evening after work to run um, into this farm and bring these sheep back. And because I was in such a hurry, I didn't ask too many questions about the sheep. And to be honest, the people I got them from didn't know a lot about the sheep they had. Um, they had bought them and only owned them, I think, a couple of years. And uh, that lack of question asking has produced a whole giant learning curve I might not have otherwise had without the insane spontaneity of buying Craigslist sheep. Because while well, I love Icelandic sheep, my very first group, uh, as I have now figured out with some experience, were probably culls off their original farm. 
Mm-hmm. My very first lambing season with just three ewes, I, I got the joy of learning every sort of dystocia, a male presentation of a lamb. That <laughs> exists. It was literally a handbook. We had backwards. We had upside down. We had two legs back. We had one leg back out of six lambs. Every single way that they could come out wrong, they did. And, and that was my first year lambing. Um, but somehow that didn't scare me off. And uh, I, I sought out better breeders and better stock. And uh, now we have a herd of about, I think there's 22 oh. uh, with, uh, I think we have one, eight ewes that'll be due in the spring. So not a huge flock, but uh, it is the flock that pays their own hay bills and those of all of the useless creatures on the farm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is funny. That is funny. Yeah. So you only, you don't breed them all at the, not all, but you don't breed all the ewes at the same time. Sounds like you only breed like half the ewes. Well, right now we have some uh, year or well coming yearling ewes that we've kept back as replacements. So uh, while some people will breed them um, their very first fall, mm-hmm. I have uh, oh. over and breed them uh, when yeah. they're about 16 months old. So we have a group of those that are ladies in waiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then because I am a soft heart and because the one advantage of Icelandic is their wool has a pretty solid core value compared to commercial sheep. Uh, commercial sheep I mean it's been as low as 50 cents a pound where you almost can't give it away yeah Icelandic sheep you can usually get between that nine to 25 dollar a pound for their wool so uh I say that the weathers we've kept back one was a bottle baby one was my daughter's favorite one I have no good explanation for uh, but fiber weathers in Icelandic at, at least pay their own bills with their wool um because the weathers uh, be it of Icelandics or um, I know Angora goats, this falls under mm-hmm. uh, because they're not using energy for making a baby or rams will use up a lot of energy worrying about the girls all fall. Um, they put all of their energy into creating really beautiful wool and tend to have superior quality um, regardless of the species. So there's a lot of people who keep castrated males just for that. They, they still pay their, pay their bills. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I had, um, I started with Icelandic sheep and then also some um Katahdin Dorper crosses okay and learned a lot from that and I have backed off from some of that and like you I didn't I didn't even know the questions that I needed to ask like that's the thing about getting started in farming or picking up a new species or a new type of animal like you don't even know what you don't know like I would have asked that question if I knew that I needed to it's like you got to know what you're what you need you got to know it before you know it in order to ask it to learn it before you know that you didn't. So it's I'm a person who <laughs> loves books, I'm a huge bookworm. And yeah. I both like old, old farming books from like a hundred years ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I get a new species, uh, I'll get, you know, all the core publications on it. But even when you do that, there's always this assumption that you're not an idiot, which they really shouldn't do. Cause I definitely didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore the, I didn't know what I didn't know, didn't, didn't even get me to, you know, chapter one of that book of, of being able to cover some of the things I, I should have known before I got into it. Do you ever pick up a book and get to the first chapter and you're like, okay, time out. I need to go look all like 20 terms that I didn't know before. Cause they're all in like this jingoistic. Yeah. There's this assumption that I have a clue and I have no clues. I'm just, they, they need to, I, I, I feel like uh, one of the things missing in the whole egg realm that we have for anything in technology are the for dummies books is take it all the way down and assume I know nothing. 
<laughs> that is so true. I mean, I got a, a sheet handling system this past summer and I've been around them. I've seen them. I have now had sheep for eight years. I'm like, okay, I can do this. And it even has instructions. I'm like, oh my God, this has got instructions. And this is a very simple handling system. It's got like, I don't know. It, I'm not going to go into the specifics of what it is because this is for like people who are just getting started or like thinking about getting started. But I'll just say that it's like a, a funnel that crams the sheep into the spot and then it goes around a corner and then they go out a guillotine gate at the end. And then there's a, uh, we call it the sheep squeezer, which is it's called a turntable, but it's the sheep squeezer. So it clamps shot on them and then you can flip them upside down, turn them sideways, trim hooves, whatever. And it's not that many pieces. It's not that long. It's like the most basic cheap system that you can get. I was mystified. Like I was mystified. And even these instructions were multiple pages. And then they used terms. I'm like, what is that? What is this? What is this thing? Like if they didn't have a label. So I, and you know, I was just laughing because I'm like, they assume that you know what you know before you know it. Yeah, so like, and that is all over agriculture. You're exactly right. Tractors, tractor, tractor. Uh -huh. Oh my God. Oh my God. I just like the adventures of tractoring that in itself. Yeah. I mean, and then every tractor is different. Yes. If you're using old tractors, yes. or tractors, they're all, all their own distinct mystery. And even within I've had the curse and blessing, however you want to view it of owning multiple versions of a very ancient tractor, the farm all M. So anyone oh. there, they are, you know, it is notable that many are used today as lawn decoration. Let's just leave that there for a moment. But they're now um, working on being an 80-year-old piece of equipment. So to their great credit, these farm LMs are still operational. They're, I mean, there's not very many 80-year-old anything that have been sitting in dusty barns and abused on a farmstead that, that still work in the year 2023. So farm LMs, I will say, are amazingly resilient machines. However, no two 80-year-old machines actually operate as intended in the year 2023. And we had one, um, we sold it because it wasn't powerful enough for moving snow, which is what we wanted for at the time. And then we got another one just to move hay bales around. And I thought, oh, I know, I know how to run a farm all after struggling with our old one. But no, they're their own mystery, model by model by model. And, and anyone who thinks they, and I love the fact you use tractoring because I don't know where you picked that up, but I totally picked that from Jeremy, Jeremy Clarkson. That's where I got it. I'm still, uh, yay, good Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> he actually goes through the same thing. The way his giant tractor works has nothing. Lamborghini, to right? Girlfriend's tractor works. It's ridiculous Lamborghini. Yeah, it's hilarious. And, and if you remember, there was the whole part where they, because the Lamborghini is an Italian tractor, but all the instructions were in German. and you know, but the parts were labeled in Italian and no one could figure out what they were doing. And I think that was just a pretty good vignette of what it's like to own a tractor, any mm -hmm. tractor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even modern tractors, I have got two tractors. Um, I've got a Kubota and I've got a little John Deere and um, they're completely different and they're modern tractors by any standards. I mean, I purchased their 2013 models. So they're they have all kinds of safety features and robust manuals and things like that. And already the part numbers have been replaced. You go to get a part, you got to identify it in an exploded diagram. I'm looking at an assembled engine. How am I going to understand what, like it's, a, it's, it's exploded. I'm like, where does that part go? What is this? <laughs> that 
translates back to, you know, animal books and your animals. I think the best was um, when I was trying to figure out whether or not one, when I very first got sheep, whether they were bloated, uh-huh. or pregnant. It was my first is right. <laughs> and the description within the book, which was, you know, very technical and, you know, trying to explain it, but I'm like, I, I don't know. And finally, a old farmer friend of mine was like, left is for lunch, right is for rugrats. So their rumen's going to expand and look large on their left side. And the babies, if they're going to be bulging around, are going to usually show up on the right side. And I'm like, that's what I needed. Sheep for dummies. <laughs> it, it's so true. It's so true. Because so many, I didn't, I didn't grow up on a farm. I mean, I grew up around horses because I was, you know, a t- teenage horse nut because growing up military moved every couple of years. And so my friends was my dog and books and any horses that I could find in the neighborhood, like anywhere within a 10 mile radius, if I could get my bike to it, I was there with that horse. So yeah, but I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm. Food came from a grocery store and I had no idea what I was doing before I was doing. I mean, did you, did you grow up on the, I mean, you, you talk about these I experiences. in the country Okay. And- and I think um, that's what has, so I grew up living outside of town. Um, mm-hmm. We moved out there when I was nine or 10. And uh, I had horses and we had some chickens and mm-hmm. I was surrounded by, you know, farmers. And that I realize now as an adult who's made enough mistakes probably gave me a uh, a misguided sense of optimism and experience. It was like, I grew up in the country, I'm fine. And so on the horse side, I've been pretty solid because I have dealt with fulling and horse training and all of those things since I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. So that gave me, you know, and and that really, you know, working with large animals is very similar, whether it's a horse or a cow or a llama, right? There's certain things that are the same, but a lot of stuff that is not. Um, and, And so... When I, um, and I have in my life, so after I graduated from high school, I, I worked professionally in the horse industry in various uh, capacities, but uh, I, I didn't own a farm or be able to populate it at will. I had horses I would board and whatnot and, until, um, let me think here, 2014, so nine years ago when we bought our farm uh, in South Dakota. And like most people, you buy your farm and you, you knew you wanted a farm, right? You're like, oh, I want to own a farm. I want to have this. I want to have that. And you start populating it. So our very first purchase, and I can't even to this day tell you why I thought this was the thing I needed. I honestly, I think if I'm being honest, was I saw it in Craigslist and was like, that's so cool, was a bread sow. Uh, Gloucester Old Spot crossed with a Berkshire Sow, which is uh, two heritage breeds. And that's what got me excited. I like the whole idea of, I've always been a fan of the Livestock Conservancy, if you know what that is, uh, with all the the rare breeds. Mm -hmm. And I'd read up, you know, in all the years of living in town, I had lived vicariously by, you know, learning as what I could online and in books. So I I bought this sow. um, Thank goodness from a very nice man who was willing to put up with all my questions that I ended up with afterwards. So we had been on the farm, I think three weeks and I I bring us this bread sow that I know nothing about caring for or handling or pig behavior for that matter. Never owned. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I think I owned a feeder pig 
for a very brief period when I was in high school that I bought from a neighbor that I thought I was going, I don't know what I meant to do with it. I don't even know why I bought it. I, I think I used some of my horse training money for it and then realized how hard it was to keep pigs in without proper fencing mm. and back to the neighbor, which was a learning curve that I learned with my very first sow and her babies. So if mm. anyone has owned pigs of any age or size, <laughs> Um, there's a reason for the term hog tight fencing. <laughs> so true. So true. Those pigs are essentially a giant tube of muscle and intelligence, and they use both to do as they please. Um, and, and so that, that was my first huge hook into learning, but it didn't stop me. That's why I say my misguided sense of optimism. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to get some more things that I don't know about. Uh, but I, I feel, you know, just like we covered that in, in some ways, that's just what you have to do because there's only so much preparation and reading and thinking about uh, one can do before you just have to learn by doing with so many of the things that are on a farm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you moved your farm. Like that's not something people do. So you started a farm from scratch. You didn't know about farming. You got up and running and then you moved it. I mean, What? Well, so in the last um, two years, I've had a whole slew of life changes, and, and this all was particip- precipitated by the fact that my husband and I um, divorced, and it's amicable. It's nothing to be sad about. We're both in better places because of it, and at the initial juncture, I took, um, he had, he traveled a lot for work, and the farm had always been all mine, and I did pretty much everything uh, from the get-go. So there wasn't really a big change in my day-to-day, but there was a big change in finances. At the same time, in 2021 and 22 in South Dakota, like a lot of other places, but South Dakota rural real estate was hugely affected by this. Our property values were just skyrocketing. Like what things were selling for around us just went insane. And as I watched that happen, um, two things happened. I was like, wow, we're sit- I'm, I'm now sitting on you know, some equity that I could use for other things. And our property taxes went completely insane. <laughs> oh my goodness. You're after that. So I got my property tax bill last year uh, with, you know, reflective of the new marketplace. And it was one of those where you open it and you, you know, can't breathe for a few minutes because it was that shocking. Yeah. Um, And at the same time, I had always noticed, um, even before the real estate boom in South Dakota, that uh, property, rural property in Minnesota was always markedly lower than South Dakota for reasons to this day I cannot explain to you. (laughs) Um, You know, climate's roughly the same, uh, at least in the eastern side or the western side of Minnesota, rather. Soil, you know, productivity is about the same, all those things that would drive and economics are roughly the same. You know, small towns are small towns, proximity cities, you know, increases prices, but and shake it all out. They should be the same, but Minnesota has always been 20 to 30% lower. Don't know. So I had always kind of looked because I have this addiction to looking at real estate and by, uh, it was actually a property I'd looked at in February and immediately went off the market. And then a whole bunch of, I found out when I did buy it, a whole bunch of things happened between February and July. And long story short, a property that fit all of my needs. Because when you move a farm, when you actually already have the animals, uh, one of the gaps you can't afford is lack of fencing and lack of facilities. You know, when you start a farm, you can scale up. Yes. Once you have a farm, you cannot. They have to be there. And, and the farm uh, that we ended up moving to, it was 
apples to apples. And one of the thing, two of the things that were important to me, a few more acres, because we were only on 7.6 acres before. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a way to make best use of my equity in South Dakota. And so I pulled the trigger, which of course started a whole cascade of things you have to do. <laughs> and everyone, everyone, and I, um, before, during, and after was like, how are you going to move all the animals? And I just want everyone to know who would listen to this, moving the animals is not even a little bit difficult. You load them on the trailer, you bring them to your new farm. What you will find if you have been on any rural property where you have lots of outbuildings and you know lots of uh, unique equipment that come with your various ventures, it is the moving and organizing of the stuff, the stuff that you have filled your many buildings with that will make your life so much more difficult than anything your animals are going to do. <laughs> oh my goodness. The livestock, actually, it was a couple of trailer trips. It was, it's about, it was three hours um, between our old property and our new property. So it was a full day just to do, you know, drive down there, pick up stock and drive back. Um, the animals were super simple and settled in without a hitch at all. It was wonderful. It went really, really well. I, I was blessed. Um, that everyone loaded. Um, we all know how loading can go sometimes, no matter what species you're talking about. But the stuff, the stuff was the most overwhelming and saying, like I had uh, 300 bale, square bales of hay in the barn, which I did not bring, but you still have that debate, especially uh, we were living in an area with the drought and hay prices has gone up and you're like, I should probably take my hay. And then you start thinking, oh my gosh, moving that much hay would be a nightmare. So there was a lot of uh, cut your losses mentality that, you know, do, is it worth the uh, time and trouble and gas and effort to move X, Y, or Z, or do you just replace it when you move? So uh, I, I will say there's nothing that'll make you purge your, your needs and wants better than a, a big old farm move. Wow. Wow. Oh my goodness. Um, so has your experience in owning a farm been at all what you envisioned when you started out? It has. Um, I, I mean, we, I've gone through, I think what a lot of people go through. So like I mentioned, our original farm was 7.6 acres, one acre of which was the quarter mile driveway and the ditch around it. So really a six and a half acre farm, which is pretty standard uh, for, I think most big farming states uh, that essentially is the homestead site. And when they parcel out the farmstead from the cropland, it's usually as tight as they can get it to, to maximize those cropland acres. And so at least in our area, it is most common to see five to 10 acre farms. And, um, you know, I, I, I have a full-time job. I have a, a career off the farm. And yet I think all of us, when we buy any kind of acreage and you see it all the time on say like homesteading Facebook groups, what can I do to make money off my farm? And so I jumped in uh, with that mentality. And while that first pig we bought was for the fun of it, it's, it quickly turned into how can I make money in pigs? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so we scaled up and got a few more sows and, um, and actually, you know, from a penciling it on paper to reality of selling it, it was working, right? It, we were making a, a small profit off of a small group of hogs but scalability, whether it's how much you can do on your land 
or how much your marketplace can absorb mm -hmm. or what was particular in our case is what the processing, the custom processing infrastructure could handle yeah. are going to limit you every time. There's, um, you know, to make, let's say a $40,000 a year net profit, you know, that, that you're paying yourself is really hard to do at a small scale. And, and what you end up seeing are the people who do something super intensively, which, you know, isn't necessarily what you want in the idyllic homestead life, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we see people with those super intensive CSA style gardens, which are an insane amount of work and, and talk, take a lot of peopling. You know, technically, I could erase 30,000 hogs in confinement setting on six and a half acres. People do it all the time. That's not what I was interested in doing. Um, you know, I could have had 10,000 laying hens in, a, you know, indoor barn, but in, in those, and then I can tell you, because I know people who do those various facets of egg for a living, mm -hmm. they're probably making $40,000 net after they pay all their expenses. Um, it's really hard, whether you're a big farmer with a confinement operation or a small farmer to pay yourself and, and pay yourself, you know, a living wage. And for me, um, we got essentially stopped up by the fact that I could raise the pigs and I could find the customers, but we couldn't get them uh, processed for people in a capacity. There, there wasn't the capacity to expand to you know, pay that minimum salary. And, and I started asking myself, like, is that what you want anyway, right? Is, is this what you wanna spend your time doing in your you know, one, you know, we only have so much time in this world is what I want to spend my time doing hustling to feed hogs, deliver them, you know, contact customers. And, and for me, at least that, that wasn't me. Just like, I knew I never want, I, I will garden because I like good tomatoes, but I don't like gardening. So <laughs> I knew I never wanted to be a market gardener. Right. <laughs> and I personally like to see my chickens free ranging. So I knew I never wanted to have, you know, a big, you know, laying hen barn. And I think it's important to, to look at those realities and ask yourself, why, why did I want to live in the country in the first place? And for me, it was so that I could have the, the animals I enjoyed for the sheer joy of them, be it our horses or our utterly useless turkeys. Um, <laughs> and, and feed ourselves a little, you know, we have our laying hens. Um, we've raised sheep steers and pigs for our own use um and and i i got to that place where i was like i don't i don't want to ask myself to make a profit off of something that i'm doing for joy because those things are hard to mesh together and 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 once i made that decision it was easier to delve in and do the things i actually enjoy doing on my farm so I really as much as my sheep anger me and I, I go through cycles of I, I can't have any more sheep usually right at the end of lambing season to right now which is before lambing season my friend Eliza and I have a term for it. it's called lamnesia <laughs> by like February and March we forget how terrible lambing can be you know the sleepless nights and the worrying about the cold lambs all the things that go with worrying about baby animals you forget about it and you're like oh I should get some more ewes like oh look at that ram for sale oh my and we it's lamnesia we just forgot and then by June I'll be like oh I gotta get rid of some sheep that was terrible 
I don't want to do that again. We're only going to breed two ewes next year. I'm not breeding any lambs. Literally, I've gone through this cycle for five years. And I think uh, it's more common than not for those of us who raise animals. But kind of like childbirth, you just forget about it and you do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. I, th- I think there's, I think Mother Nature has a way of doing that. Oh my goodness, that's so funny. So you um, obviously, so you're, you're not making uh, a solid living off of like mass production of meat or eggs or anything like that. So you work off the farm and you're a single mom. I do. And I am. Yes. So how do you juggle that? I mean, what does that look like? I mean, to be fair, most farmers today, well, small farmers, I should say, um, a lot of small farmers and people getting started, they make the conscious choice that they're going to keep this life out here. They're going to have this off farm income and then they're going to have the farm. If the farm pays for itself, then that's fine. But the goal is to get into farming full time and make, you know, and make that transition into the farm life and the farm paying its own way. So how are you, how are you, where are you in that process? Do you think that's possible? Are you ever going to do it? Did you never think it was? was just You know, I have considered that route in in a number of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I come just for an FYI, my, my background professionally is in marketing. Okay. I'm pretty good at, you know, doing some business planning and, you know, market scenarios and understanding the realities of the dollars and cents and an ROI on a project. And so I'd pencil a number of things that could have turned a profit. But again, when you talk about six and a half acres, yeah. that's, the intensiveness that you would have to create, um, which is hard on you. It's hard on animals, you know, intensive settings. I don't care what you do are harder on animals than more agrarian settings. Mm -hmm. And it's hard on your land. You know, if I want to stock my six and a half acres with 40 feeder calves, that's going to completely change the nature of literally the land I am sitting on. Then if I have two horses and 10 sheep, it's going to, I'm going to have, you know, a, a feedlot, right? And, or if I want a market garden, it's going to change how I can use that six and a half acres. Cause now I need three acres for my produce, which means I can't have say my horses for fun. Cause I don't have the pasture. And for me, it was a process of just asking those very direct questions about what was really important to me. And, and for me, again, I, I decided I want to be here because I want to be here, not because I need it to, to make a profit. And and I realized that I come from a, a place of privilege and that I also work in a realm and currently for an employer where I'm, I'm mostly remote and that changes things. And even before I was fully remote, because we didn't really start that until um, when we had to go remote for COVID, I had a very flexible employer. I mean, I can tell you the, the very first week I worked for South Dakota Public Broadcasting, my nephew, um, who was like 14 at the time, was actually at my farm. I started in, in June of us. Uh, summer several years ago (laughs) and my nephew is at home or at the farm doing some fencing for me while I was at my new job and this is the like the very first week in my new job you know I'm in the office I'm trying to be professional and he calls my cell phone to tell me that our milk cow has gotten out (laughs) it's disappeared because it was a gap in the fencing he didn't realize that he was working and she could escape from and it was a very hot July day and she was very pregnant. So having her running around the neighborhood was not good. And, and so I, I, my employer, my boss was totally okay. I was like, look, I need to leave and find my cow. 
and, and they let me go home and do that. And then, you know, I realized that's not, um, something that everybody's employer, whether you've been there a week or or 10 years is going to be like, yeah, you better go home and find your cow. (laughs) Um, and I mean, I have, I have been, um, I work for a public broadcasting company. So we, um, are both the NPR and PBS member station for South Dakota. (laughs) And, uh, quite often for one reason or another, I will end up on, on the radio, on public radio in South Dakota. Um, Sure for whatever project we're working on. And I have uh, been literally with an arm inside an ewe untangling a lamb while in a radio interview. That's how you balance things. You just got to multitask it out. Damn. Damn. <laughs> but I would say for most people, I mean, it's, oh. it's really hard. I, I remember when I really, I was in the office five days a week, eight to five, um, you know, pick my daughter up from school and you have that two hours before it's dark and before your child goes to bed and you need to do chores. That's really hard. And, um, that again, comes back to decisions like what, what do you want your life to look like? And, you know, does it mean, okay, I do want to do more chickens. Cause then maybe I can only work part-time. And I think what's important, no matter how you decide that mix comes together mm-hmm. is ask yourself you know, where you want to be and, and what that life looks like. And, and, you know, whether it can happen in a week or a year or five years, start putting together those things. And, and for me, it was really working with an employer um, that, in a, and I work in an industry where it's easier to be flexible. You know, there's in the year 2023, thankfully a lot more remote opportunities than there used to be. Um, or, you know, developing skill sets that, you know, might let you have more opportunity in a rural setting uh, and working for yourself or, you know, looking at what is reasonable and possible and uh, most importantly makes money on the acre and the farm and, and what you can do and, and being really realistic about what that mix looks like. Because like I said, I, I didn't personally want to have a farm that was just a big feedlot. Could it have made me money. Yes. But it wasn't what, I wanted my country life, my farm life to look like, but it might be for someone else. And, and that's the question you ask yourself, I think. Yeah. So this kind of brings me to something else that I, I read one of your posts recently. I mean, I've been reading your post for a couple of years now, I must say yeah. uh, lurking, but sometimes I comment, but usually I was just, I've just been lurking and reading going, Oh my gosh. And I would tell my kids, Oh, this is another story from Delarna. And they're like, Oh, how is she? Like, like you said, people know Delarna. Right. So anyway, um, there was a post that you recently put out there about a terrifying experience when you saw a black blizzard. So in, in, in I, I'm, I'm tying these two things together because you mentioned how you didn't want to run a feedlot. And then you see a black blizzard for the audience, can you talk about how those things might actually be related? I mean, do you think they are? Cause I do. I mean, that's just me, but well, so I, and um, yeah, some soil. Yeah. Where I live now, mm-hmm. um, both where we were at South Dakota and where we're at currently in Western Minnesota, mm-hmm. uh, in modern times, and I'm talking the last 20 years is primarily cropland. And in, when I say cropland, I mean, corn and soybeans. It is almost exclusively at this point in time, uh, field corn, not sweet corn, field corn, which is primarily fed to cattle or used for ethanol and soybeans, which is primarily fed to livestock. Uh, 
what that has done in in the past couple of decades is so when I was a kid living in South I grew up in southeastern South Dakota when you drove along the roads the the farms were much more diverse so a farmer might have a small group of cows that he calved out and sold the feeder calves from and you know fed those cows on corn stalks and he and so if he had say 300 acres he'd have a little bit of pasture he'd have you know some corn ground um there were a lot more small grains then which is uh, farmed very very differently than row crops so we're talking like wheat and oats um even things like millet and sorghum are, are still very different how they are how they use the soil and, and what it looks like than corn and soybeans. And as things have changed in agriculture, many of which aren't really in control of, of these farmers. So, you know, there's, I, I, there's no boogeyman here. It's market forces that make it really hard. I, I can tell you that where we were at in Southeast of South Dakota, if I today had wanted to grow wheat, which used to be a staple crop in that area 50 years ago, it would, if I decided, hey, I don't want to grow corn anymore. I want to grow wheat or I want to grow oats. For me to find a market for it, an elevator, you know, a place to take my oats mm-hmm. would have, I couldn't go to my local one, which is maybe seven miles away. I might have to drive 70 or 80 miles because that oh. is how much the whole infrastructure has changed and, and built around these crops. So um, what this means is to, to be profitable, to have that $40,000 to pay yourself a salary, which is, you know, as we know, not that much in the year 2023, um, you have to go bigger. So a farmer who farms a thousand acres is probably not making any more salary and what he pays himself and what pays for the food on his table and, you know, keeps the lights on than the farmer farming 300 acres 25 years ago, because things have changed that much. And when I, when I farm a thousand acres, Every acre counts, every square foot counts. Fence lines that make it, you know, that I gotta go leave a field and come back, go on the road and come another field are in my way where they might not have been before. And instead of a a mile section of land being a little bit of pasture and a little bit of small grain and a little bit of row crop, it might now be 640 acres of just corn. And one of the effects of that is the loss of, of the, what we, we had actually spent most of post thirties into the fifties rebuilding because we kind of messed this up the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, tree lines, uh, fence lines that were you know, full of grass, of waterways that we might've left alone and left in grass because it just didn't make sense. Because as every square foot started to count, those square feet started being taken back. and. As we, um, so the last couple of years in Southeastern South Dakota have been drought years. Um, This past year, 2022 was an extreme drought. um, One of the worst, particularly in the deep Southeastern part we'd seen in a very long time. And while it still would have been a drought and it still would have been dry if if that were say all virgin prairie from 150 years ago, when everything's plowed up and there are no trees and there is no grass and there's nothing to stop that dirt once it starts, we essentially saw a repeat, uh, a mini repeat, I should say, of the dirty 30s. Uh, we had a couple of major dust storms, I mean, black out the sky, every description you have ever heard from the Great Depression happened all over again. There were drifts of dirt, not snow, drifts of dirt in the dishes, oh, topsoil was literally wiped clean. There was no moisture, there was no roots, there were no trees, there's nothing to stop it. It drifted into the ditches. 
And wow. was all of it preventable? No, was some of it preventable? Probably. And I, I think, unfortunately, you know, we're humans, we have really short memories. The people who planted those trees and left those fence lines and saw that all happen, you know, in the 30s, or even, even the droughts of the 80s, they're not farming today. And it's like, we have to relearn. I don't, you pick something, what a recession looks like, or what government, you know, chaos looks like, or what droughts look like, and how you treat your land seems to be something that humans need to learn on a generation by generation basis, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So, I mean, I know that there's been a lot of talk about rotational grazing and regenerative agriculture, and it really seems to be picking up steam, but it's picking up steam one funeral at a time of conventional farmers that are retiring out and then new people coming in, not just from their kids, their progeny, but coming in from outside of agriculture, like newcomers into agriculture. I mean, do you want to comment on that? Have you seen that in your area? Do you, um, do you see that happening near you? Well, I have I've it here in a, Ohio, all over the place. Do you have it there? I've seen a mix of both. I have seen uh, a lot of the new generation taking over dad's land, mm -hmm. um, trying out those things. Because at the end of the day, people have to do what the market will bear. Yeah. Unless I come from a trust fund or I win the lottery, I have to do something that will turn a profit. Mm -hmm. The beauty of a lot of these things, and I think cover crops are a great example that I've, I've seen a huge growth of with conventional farmers in, in southeastern South Dakota. So uh, say in a lot of, so we, we've heard of no-till, if anyone knows that is, that means instead of in the fall after I harvest my corn and my beans, um, what became the norm for a very long time was then to go till it up. And, and, and there was a good reason for that. That helps the soil warm up faster in the spring. It makes it a lot easier to get into that field and get it early. And if, if you've ever been part of planting, I don't care if it's peas in your garden or a thousand acre field of corn, time is of the essence. And we all know how spring rains can just ruin all of our best laid plans. So you might have three days to plant. <laughs> and, and so having that soil warm and ready to go made a lot of sense, but it, it had you know a lot of ramifications. And so no-till started filtering back in, which is where you don't till on, and you just drill uh, your crop in into and leave that soil intact, leave the microbial population there. And it it creates a lot of benefits, but also some of its own problems. Um, but one of the things, and so I've seen that grow, which has been really, and that definitely helps in these drought situations. It holds soil moisture in, it holds the soil together, uh, has a, a ton of benefits there. But one of the cool things I've seen grow that started on the fringes, that was like the regenerate, the hippie farmers, we're off doing this, even though 80 years ago, every farmer did this. I, I collect old farm books and like, it was just what you did is cover crops. So if I get my beans out early, I might go plant some winter wheat or oats, um, not to harvest them, not to have a, a crop of oats to harvest the next spring, but their job is to grow that little bit in the fall, pull up nutrients from deep in the soil, hold that soil together, keep it safe, and, and then plant into it in the spring. And that, um, you know, I, I, in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm not that old, <laughs> I'm old enough, but I'm not like 100 years old yet. I went from, like I said, watching this huge diversity of crops and some pasture land and, you know, a lot of things going on in these farms, which meant um, this time of year, February, it, it was still pretty. 
So mm -hmm. you'd go and, you know, the winter wheat would be bright green um, as the snow yeah. blew off of it. The pastures had, you know, tufts of gray. It, 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 it was a distinctly different landscape than what a person started seeing from kind of the mid nineties onwards where this time of year, um, it's gray, it's ugly, it's bleak dirt everywhere you look. There's nothing but bleak covered up dirt, but that that's changing again. Cause now what I drive around and see is those cover crops sitting green. I mean, one of my favorites to see is how people will plant um, and I'm gonna get the terms wrong, but it's essentially it's turnips as a- Oh, it's one of the, the mangles or the- Yeah. And- Mangles, is that right? Yeah, some, I've never read, I've never heard it said, I've only read it. So, but, um, and, yeah. and I think there's a rat, daikon radishes are actually planted as a cover crop. So a few years ago uh, where we mm -hmm. lived, a whole bunch of cover crops got planted because we had a really weird wet year and certain things. And it was just hilarious and just fun to see. And it changed the landscape and change, because there'd just be these bloops, you know, these globes of turnips and radishes. And my daughter and I totally were the people saying, Hey, can we go pick some of your radishes? And the farmers are like, okay, you're weird, but go for it. Because it, it changed the landscape and it was green and there were things happening and it wasn't just bleak dirt. And, and most importantly, it, it changes soil health. It changes how much commercial fertilizer farmers have to use, even how much pesticides they have to use because those the, the mix of crops changes what insect loads there are. It, it, um, the commercial benefits, the dollars and cents benefits of doing some of these things are seeing real application. I think that's where we'll see, and I don't care if you have 50 acres or 5,000, you gotta turn a profit. And as people realize, oh, doing these things actually make fiscal sense um, is where the growth is gonna happen because you know, we can't make more soil and we can't make more farmland and we can't make more pastures. We, we have less and less of all of those every year. Absolutely. So doing the best with what you have is, is gonna be the bottom line for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that small scale farming is a real opportunity for people to get back into agriculture and start to really understand some of these bigger issues? Or do you think it's a fad? Like, because there's, uh, like I said, I, 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 I am talking to so many people and just, uh, so I'm in central Ohio and just in, I live in a, a valley. It's a long, skinny valley. And this long skinny valley, I have seen the families just in this valley turn over just in the last 10 years. So 10 years ago, we got started and we put Icelandic sheep in. My neighbors are like, what are those things? Those are boutique animals. Those are special sheep. And they, they, they just want to know how come I didn't grow corn and beans and, and things like that. And it was, it was funny because they kind of, they, they looked at, they looked at the situation really funny. And now 10 years later, I'm seeing, oh, there's Wagyu beef over there. And, oh, I'm seeing uh black nose ballet sheep over there. And I'm seeing, um, I'm seeing Icelandics and the Icelandic population is growing. And I'm seeing more hair sheep, just sheep in general. You never, like, I, I never saw sheep growing up. The sheep wasn't an American thing. I mean, those stuff that happened on the other side of the, of the Atlantic ocean. Right. But, um, like I'm starting to see more sheep. I'm seeing a lot more small goats. I'm seeing a lot more little things popping up and more variety popping up. 
And sure enough, these are, I don't know if you want to call them hobby farms or farmsteaders or homesteaders with pets or who cares, but they're rural properties with lots of different types of livestock. And it's, it's, it's really catching on. Backyard chickens are hot. I mean, you can't even get chicks from a major hatchery than the breeds and types that you want right now. It's crazy right now. Everyone is like screaming with their hair on fire. They all want chickens because eggs are too expensive. You can't get in the store. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. It's just like picking up so much momentum. Well, look at this. So I started my college career, actually, I, I was, I was on a path to work in science. So I was taking all of the upper level science and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And then because I was working my way through college and needed more flexible class schedule and, and just wanted to get done, I switched to business major and focused on economics. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how that those years of learning and the classes I took make, make it easy, I, I, or at least make me feel like I understand how to answer your question. Because two things are very much the same in both economics and ecosystems. And it's fun that they both start with ECO, Latin roots for the win. <laughs> but um, in any ecosystem or any economic world, we, we tend to have, you know, dominant, you know, something becomes dominant, you know, uh, industry, you know, mm -hmm. it grabs up, it becomes a behemoth. Mm -hmm. And you see that, you know, in, um, ecosystems, you know, you'll have like the bison, you know, dominate the grassland, right? But what happens whenever you get something that is specialized and big is it loses all its flexibility. So if anything changes in that environment or in that ecosystem, you know, in, in the economic world, and you can't change with what has happened, you start to fall apart. And what that does is it creates opportunities for others to fill that niche. So, um, you know, we, we see it in technology all the time, right? You get somebody who gets too big, they can't change when the market changes. You know, Apple computers has gone through this up and down for the last 40, 50 years now. You know, they, when you, and, and I think we're seeing that in egg, right? So if you think about how American eating has changed in the last 80 years. So we were small systems based, you know, pretty much in my hometown, 80 years ago, there was a butcher there was a creamery, there was an egg selling station, all of the groceries, you know, or I shouldn't say all, but a lot of the groceries came from the farms around. So all those farms were highly diversified. Even the farms themselves, most of the grains they grew went to feed their own livestock versus sending them, you know, to an ethanol plant or to a Colorado feedlot, right? Mm -hmm. And and then the 50s sort of happened when packaged food and television and all the marketing that went with mass production became the thing. I mean, if you ever want to read a really cool history, understand how the rise of Jell-O accompanied the rise of refrigeration was a status symbol at some one point in the Midwest. If you brought a Jell-O salad to church, it was because your family had a refrigerator. And that makes you one of the rich families. I didn't know why that was popular. I'm like, what's the deal with Jell-O? That's so funny. Oh and what a funny story. And, and so packaged and processed foods really lend themselves to, you know, uh, a streamlined application. So it started in the factories, you know, how we produce noodles, you know, made more sense to consolidate it, which changed where we grew wheat. Mm -hmm. um, then we started seeing it happen to animals first in pigs and, and chickens. We, you know, we 
grocery stores in fairly swift order. Now, first of all, most of the eggs started getting sold to go into packaged products, right? Yeah. So I wasn't making homemade noodles with eggs. I was buying prepackaged noodles from the grocery store. That's a big change. That's where a lot of eggs go even today in making pasta. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not many are table eggs. The majority of them are egg product, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I did read that. Yeah. And, and so we, we switched to a different system and it got really massive. Right. And they mm-hmm. all sort of started collecting under there, but then think about how, you know, starting, you know, with you use the word boutique and I think it's a great word. Yeah. Think of, Oh, those Californians with their avocado toast or, you know, these little regional pop culture things you hear about that inevitably start filtering down. So if you think of uh, like whole foods, you know, that, and even, you know, what you see in the most rural of restaurants, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, our, our local town, which is a very rural town has three different sushi restaurants in South Dakota. I mean, that, that wasn't a thing 20 years ago. Right. And um, whether it's organic or local or heritage beef or Wagyu, you know, our tastes are now demanding, Hey, I want something better. You know, I am personally a, a horrible pork fan. I cannot eat supermarket pork because I've had heritage breed pork. And, and I would suspect that most people given them both would never go back to supermarket pork. Once you've been exposed to the alternative, we're seeing that, you know, with beef, Wagyu beef is becoming huge because it tastes better. And if I am Hormel or I am JBS beef, or I am, you know, the giant egg conglomerates, I can't, I can't switch my system. My huge giant system is built to do one thing, produce as many eggs as cheaply as possible to turn into egg product, right? I can't suddenly churn out free range organic eggs with, you know, the beautiful bright yolk that we know comes of, you know, eating real food. Because yeah. once you've had a good farm egg, you don't want any more supermarket eggs. That's the truth. <laughs> yes. And, and I think that's really for yourself. Go try a fresh pasture raised egg. Sorry. And you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> We've now ruined you, but you will like being ruined. Yes. But I think that's what's creating the opportunity. And and this will cycle itself out. There will be people who are able to scale it up and mm-hmm. take up a little more room in the market. And in 20 or 30 years, it'll all shake itself out in a way you and I probably can't even predict right now. But I think there is real opportunity, but I think it still will always come back to who can make money and make it work like my pork experiment i could raise the pigs at a profit i could find customers for my pigs i couldn't scale up the processing capacity there's a lot of factors that go into bringing that whole world together but i think because we're in the information age the mm-hmm. opportunity for people to trade information find partnerships that might be across the country you know you might be able to help me and i might be able to help you from different sides it, it's a whole different ball game than it was for people 100 years ago or even 30 years ago mm-hmm. and i think we're going to learn that cooperation teamwork and helping each other truly will you know raise raise people up as a group oh yeah i i couldn't agree more you know it's it's interesting you talk about these these bigger market factors at play in today's world and systems and things like that. I mean, you obviously have a very deep awareness and um, 
as well as a good grip on history. Well, but- and well, you brought up sheep and goats. And I think that's a great example of where big egg is just totally failing. So I was shocked yeah. um, to find out this was, I don't know what the stats are currently, but I think this was in 2019 that 70% of the goat meat eaten in the United States is imported. I've read similar things. And, and it serves mostly the ethnic markets, right? We have a large Muslim population, large Hispanic population, mm-hmm. um, and some other, you know, smaller groups in, in Indian, Indian population, uh, African, a lot of the African uh, people mm-hmm. here. And they, and rightfully so, I, I too enjoy goat meat. I didn't know I did till I did. Um, I know, same here. <laughs> so, so they created a market that didn't exist. And for anyone who has raised goats or sheep, they are two species, um, at least in their current incarnation, you know, because we can always breed in traits or breed them out that do not do well in a confinement setting. They do not lend themselves to a feedlot or, you know, intensive, it, you know, parasites are an issue, hoof issues are, they're much more sensitive and they, they really need at least a, a, a small amount of range to be successful. And so, one of my theories is that's part of why they've been ignored by big egg. A, the market wasn't so big. If you ever want to know the history of why sheep meat lost all its popularity in the U.S., ask the World War II veterans. They're essentially why mutton and lamb disappeared from American palates because they, they were served canned mutton from New Zealand. Oh, ew. Months and months and they came oh, or mutton. And there's, I mean, it is a ratio you can see from 1948 onward. Boom. You just quit eating it. Mm. And it never came back. And because in my theory is, you know, big egg, it, I, it's, I can't raise 1000 sheep on six acres as easily as I could raise 1000 picks. I can't scale it in the same way, mm-hmm. but now we have a new market. They, the new market happened. We have this huge demand for sheep and goat meat. I mean, if you look at uh, the really savvy sheep and goat breeders, I know are, 1000% aware of the big Muslim holidays eat mm-hmm. because prices go crazy because it's just like, uh, you know, Christmas geese in England or Thanksgiving turkeys. That's the, you can count on, you know, certain market factors to help you. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, Hormel or Smithfield, they, they can't suddenly add a whole bunch of sheep and add sheep processing that creates all this opportunity for the small farmer who can add a price premium, right? They aren't mass producing. They're creating a unique product that's hugely in demand and make a living from it. And I think that's like the perfect example of how, you know, big things create opportunity for little things to grow. It's like a forest. It is. It's exactly like a forest. It's very much. It's interesting how our social behavior kind of mimics the nature and the natural cycles of the plant that we live on. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All part of one, whether we like it or not. Oh, very, very true. So, I mean, I I didn't, I think I was 30 years old before I tried lamb and I did it on a lark because it was, um, it was, Easter weekend and I went to the grocery store and none of the ham look I don't I don't I have something about sweet meat like I have I don't like sweet meat like I like it savory I just don't like it sweet and so I went to the grocery store I figured I'm just going to get a ham this is you know back in the day before I knew better 22 years ago and um 
everything was maple glazed or, you know, brown sugar ham. And I'm like, so I went over to Trader Joe's and there's leg of lamb on sale, stacked up, lonely, lots of it in this little bin, right? Everything else is all like, you know, (laughs) cleared out. So, but, you know, there I see is leg of lamb, Trader Joe's. I'm like, you know, Christian upbringing, Easter, lamb of God, I'm serving lamb. So I grabbed this leg of lamb and I'm like, okay. And I brought it home and I said to my husband, we're having lamb for, for Easter. And he goes, do you know how to cook lamb? I'm like, not a clue. He goes, how's this going to work? I'm like, I don't know. He goes, okay. (laughs) He's like, okay, you're good. You're good cook. I trust you. I'm like, I don't trust myself. This is different, but okay. Well, the directions came on the back. I did it. I didn't even go on the internet and look it up. I just followed the directions on the back. It was amazing. Like, oh my God, that was so good. And I said, how come more people don't eat lamb? Hell if I know. And so I started buying it every once in a while. Well, fast forward, 45 years old. And I was at a, I was at a, a cafe and I'm an adventurous eater, unless it's sweet and me. So I'm at this cafe and they had, um, goat burgers with um, brie and caramelized pear. So this was way outside my comfort zone, way outside. It was fruit and meat. I mean, it was a sweet and meat, but it was fruit and meat. I was like, okay. So I decided I've never had anything bad here. It looks weird. It's got to be good. Otherwise it wouldn't be on there. How do you grow if you're not uncomfortable? So I ordered it. It changed my world. We got goats. <laughs> they started processing so them. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, why don't Americans eat goats? I don't know. People are like, oh, goat. I think we will be. I mean, that's I think we will. the beauty of diversity, right? We learn about yeah. things we wouldn't learn about if we only talk to people who are exactly like ourselves and and diversity creates opportunity. And we're, we're seeing it. Every goat farm or sheep that you see in a pasture in your valley is living proof of how the market can change due to demands that the, you know, the big guys can't meet. Unquestionably. There's a cattle farmer. Um, he's, I think he's, oh my gosh, he's got to be like sixth or seventh generation. He's not actually in the valley, but he's like my satellite neighbor. He's like the corner of his property touches the corner of my property. Like if you look on Google Earth. So he's like, he's out of the valley. He's up on like the plateau type. But anyway, he has changed over his um, his cattle operation, his family's cattle operation. He changed it all over to meat goats. And I said, how did you manage to do that? He goes, oh, it was a rough couple of years, but I decided to do it. And I said, okay. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, pound for pound, my goats are 400% more profitable than cows ever have been for my, for my family. And they are so much faster um, to turn them over and they are so much easier on the land and they eat um, stuff that cattle had grazed all the grass down as continuous grazing. And now he does rotational goats. And so even though they're, they're browsers, there was so many weeds left from the cattle that the goats running through actually healed the land. And he has been able to have this operation where he's got rotational grazing of meat goats and the pastures are improving and he's making a lot of money 
and he's meeting local demand. He said, if I could buy another 200 acres, I could be very well off. I was like, whoa, who knew? I said, you know, you never see goat meat for sale in the grocery store. And he said, it all goes to the ethnic market. He's like, everything I produce goes to this one ethnic market in downtown Columbus and Columbus, Ohio. And at, he's like, I I know that I will be sold out before I even, bef- when those an- before those animals are even born, I know I'm going to be sold out at this time of the year here and I'm going to make 400% more profit. Yeah, and and there, there, and that's where you know profitability. Yep, will will make or break all of us, no matter what we want to do. And looking yep. for those opportunities where, I mean, one of the you know cores of of creating any product, yeah, is look for an unmet meet, unmet need. Yes, an egg today because of the diversity of our population, because of you know people's changing tastes mm-hmm. because of the, the fact that, you know, we're in that cycle of breaking free from what we used to do, which is what, you know, we do every few generations, right? Um, our grandmothers broke free of their grandmothers producing their own food so that they could have jello from the refrigerators. And now we're doing the opposite. <laughs> Back to jello, yeah. Finding that unmet need, um, mm-hmm. And seeing if it aligns with your values and what you want to do is, mm-hmm. is the magic potion. That's very true. But in meeting unmet needs, you're also breaking new ground, which there's a lot of social inertia pushing in the opposite direction. And, um, and what you said from your farmer friend, you're going to have a rough couple of years. Yeah. New. And it's not just the social inertia and the, what are you doing from this yes. family or your neighbors mm-hmm. or the, you know, auction? But also the learning curve, because I guarantee that farmer had the same sort of rough learning curve. And he obviously he grew up, his family has been raising cattle. But every time you try something new, it's a risk, both a financial and a learning risk. But again, you don't meet an unmet need without Mm -hmm. being the one who's willing to jump in and take the risk. Very true. Um, Going against multiple generations, even and especially if they're still living and they're saying, what are you doing? I'm the only, I'm the only member of my family who went into farming. Everyone else is in medicine. And I didn't even go into medicine. That was a problem. I went into communications and business. That was and then I went out of business into agriculture. So that was even more of a problem. I mean, they're supportive. They love me and all, but they sort of look at me like, I don't get you. I don't understand. Like, where did this, is this some sort of throwback gene? Where did this come from? This is very recessive. What happened here? But I mean, if you think about it, mm-hmm. uh, a doctor is willing to take all the knowledge, weigh the risks, try something new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being a good farmer is about constantly absorbing all the new information about what you're doing. And yeah. there's no way to be a good farmer. And I don't care what kind of farm you have and not be a lifelong learner. And I would say the, the same is true of, you know, a good doctor or you know, like my family's all lawyer, a lot of lawyers in my family. That would have been the preferred route. Mm-hmm. You're going to be successful uh, to the big things are taking risks and, and never, never stopping growing. That's true. That's true. And farming is definitely a lot of, I mean, I, for me, it's one nonstop series of 20 simultaneous experiments going on. And some of them are multi-year experiments, right? Like, what did you say? Solving for X, you got to do all of these crazy calculations, whether it's medicine or hay or fencing materials or weather. Yeah. 
Well, and, and for me, um, so I am a person who both from nature and nurture is a fairly high anxiety individual. I would have been great as a cave woman looking out for danger. I would have been all over keeping the saber tooth cat away from my children. Ah. But without that balance in, you know, it has been my nature my whole life to, to be a fairly anxious person. And the calmer my life is, you know, if there's not a move or a job change happening, mm-hmm. the more generalized anxiety I would feel until mm-hmm. I got a farm. Because the great thing about a farm, because you have 20 simultaneous experiments, it means you also have 20 simultaneous bits of chaos happening and real things to worry about. You know, you wake up and you go, did anyone get stuck on the fence overnight? Did I leave the water tank running? Why won't the tractor start? <laughs> and, and you have, for me at least, it's been having all these real world worries, you know, that are sometimes life and death, right? Real, like, I don't figure this out. The sheep is going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, that for me have hugely helped my mental health. Like I am a calmer, happier person because I have all of these real worries to, to noodle on because that's what my brain wants to do. And I gave it a good outlet. So when you say real worries, are you talking about tangible problems? Like but my nature would be without a tangible problem. Mm-hmm worry about existential pro, you know problems the apocalypse you know what if what if this headache is brain cancer <laughs> things that you know aren't logical but your brain won't let go of and and my theory is that it's, it's because it sometimes just needs something real and farms provide that very tangible worry and you know problem solving and solve for x thousand times a day every day that that keeps that part of my my um cave woman brain occupied is there also the physicality you think that balance between cerebral and physical i think it's a huge part i mean i i always think that one of the things that lacks in modern life is um and you know when you work in an office setting especially is is we don't do anything real right i i sit here i am i'm in meetings i answer emails but quite often when i get to the end of the day i can't go look at the thing i did right? I don't see it. I didn't touch it. I didn't move it. And I I've termed the stacking bales syndrome. Cause I hate, I, I, you know, if you've ever stacked hay in July square bales, it is a terrible job. It's hot. It's dusty. There's so much hay in your bra that you could make a whole nother bale. Yes. It's like a sugar donut. You're just like stuck. You have splinters. Like, how did I get a hay splinter? It's grass. Yes, exactly. How did it get in my hand? Like cactus spines. But the thing is, when you get done, as miserable as that day was, there's, at least for me, and I think there is for a lot of other people, you have this very deep satisfaction. You're bone tired, but you can go, that's what I accomplished today. I did this thing. I hunted and gathered and put my bales there. And it feels really good. You know, same with if you shear, get your sheep shearing done or you clean out the barn. Yes. There's a Zen in doing a thing and being able to know in a very, very tangible way what you did that day. And I, we're wired that way. We, we like to be very proud of all our modern conveniences, but we're wired the same way hunters and gatherers were a thousand years ago, right? Mm-hmm. My farmer ancestors, my hunting ants, they, they, we all have the same basic brain, but we don't really meet its needs the way we've set up our world for conveniences and doing as little as possible. That's that's what modern life's all about, right? 
how to make my world easier. And in doing that, what you take out some of those feedback loops. I mean, Temple Grandin writes about um, how all livestock and all animals have some basic needs. And, and one of them, you know, you know, it's things you'd, ex- or some basic emotions. So like mm-hmm. fear, lust, play are some of those core things. But one I always find the most interesting is the seeking behavior. So whether you're a predator or you're a prey animal, most of your day in a wild setting would be seeking food, right? You're either hunting the antelope or you're a horse or a cow or, or the antelope looking for something to browse, mm-hmm. right? And so you're looking, you're looking, and and to stay alive, you get a dopamine hit every time you get the food, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I and she has theorized, and I, I tend to agree with her that part of you know some of the addictive behaviors we see in humans, be it your phone addiction, or gambling, or you know shopping addiction, is is us trying to seek to fulfill that that seeking behavior, you know, because I my food's just there, I don't have to do anything about it. But again, come back to farm life, you know, we, we engage in a lot of activities that fill those behaviors. So think about if you've ever had a strawberry patch is a great example. That's the seeking behavior. That's literally what a hunter and gatherer did, searching around for the red berries. Um, we, we do these very physical behaviors that I, I think fill a deeper need that most of us don't even know we wanted. That's interesting. I think in our increasingly virtual world too, that seeking behavior is so unmet because of, like you said, well, I mean, geez, before I had a farm, I was, I was working all day behind a a, a keyboard and I would be driving an hour into work and work all day and solve problems all day long. And I'd come home and I had nothing to show for it. Nothing like, and I want to say like I could talk about it. I could talk about what I did, but it's like, it felt like gossip around the table. It didn't. Yeah, like if you know. had to show a five-year-old what you did that day, you'd have nothing to show them. I'm they telling you, that is so true. That is so <laughs> true. Yeah, because I'll tell you what, I could, I could teach my kids what to say in a sentence that identified what I did, but did they have a feel for it? No, but they had a feel for it when I was telling the stories of, and then, you know, Gary said this, and then, you know, Athelda did that. And, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm saying these different things and they, they got into the personalities, they got into the intrigue of it, but it's the social interaction, but it wasn't the work itself. Yep. And those are just the story. But on their farm, if you tell a kid, I planted seeds today, yes. I steered the sheep today, we yes. put up hay today. Yes. Have Five-year-olds can understand right. that. Did you refill that grit for the, for the chucks? You know, we're going to have to move them tomorrow. Refill, refill the quad, put some, put some diesel in the tractor. And I need this other thing. And to quote Jeremy Clarkson again, I did a thing. I did a thing. Exactly. I did a thing. That's very true. And I, I love the way he, he just gets right into the grit of the, of the matter where he talks about, I don't know, he just waxes poetic and I love it. And I guess that's, it's the same way you write quite honestly. And maybe that's what it feels to me so much. And maybe that's why you love it too. But he puts his finger right on that, which is I've lived this life and I thought I was rich. And then I experienced this other thing. And I realized I didn't know you didn't have any about that. Like it just open, it just opens your eyes and your mind to this new dimension of life and it like starts this itch that you can't can't scratch and it just keeps going it just keeps on going 
Yep, they always called, you know, they people joke about like backyard chickens being the gateway drug. And, and I think it's yeah. a true because it's this little mini exposure to I did a thing, right? I feed the chickens, I care for the chickens, I get an egg. Yes. That's really cool. Yes. This builds from it. And we like, I mean, I very firmly believe that we have this inner need to do a thing, to stack a bale, to yes. have something to show. You know, even if it's only a very minor part of our day feeding the chickens in the backyard, I still did a thing. I think it's my kids who are assigned chores are more fulfilled and stable. They have that, they they have that feeling of accomplishment at a young age. It's not just that they're responsible and yeah, farm kids know how to do stuff different than city kids. Yeah, that's true. But it's that there's more to it than that. It's that they actually did a thing, right? And they know they did it well. And it contributed to the family's productivity and they did that thing. And it's that accomplishment. It's that sense of identity. And it's that, it's that, it's that validation. Yes. Yes. Well said. Yes. I agree. Yeah. I mean, gateway animal, that is, that is the truth. Um, I, I say this all the time. I sound like a broken record in case anyone's listening to this for the first time. Uh, lived in suburbia. My kids had, um, pretty bad allergies and I turned my backyard into an organic garden because after I started learning how to decode was actually in food by reading a label, it was alarming. So organic, organic garden. Cool. That's right. And then you learn what's in eggs and, and how the chickens are raised and what they're fed. I'm like, I can do better. So next thing, you know, we got a flock of illegal backyard chickens and we finally got busted. Of course we did. I mean, I was bribing the neighbors for years and they were all like on the down low, like, okay, don't worry. We're not going to tell, but you know, Lois down there might be telling me. Sure enough, Lois told on me and I got busted. But by then, you know, my husband and I are like, uh, this isn't a face we're going farm. And it just, it, but it, it got it rolling. It just went to the next thing, the next thing. And the kids, even though they were young, they were like, between ages four and 10, even though they were young, they were involved with the chicken chores. Wash out this, wash this out, you know, go feed the birds, go gather the eggs. And, and, you know, they would help with treating injuries or, you know, feeding the chick, the replacement chicks when they're growing up. And it was, they did a thing. And so when we moved to farm life. They're doing lots of things now. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you, what do you have in the future for yourself from skunk works? Like, what do you, what are you doing next? I mean, like you, you mentioned a book, your stories yeah. are amazing. I am currently you help others do stuff like this. What are, what are we, what are we looking at from you? What, what? Well, I, I have a lot of irons in the fire, which is pretty normal for me. Uh, sure. Obviously with moving to a new farm, uh, there's a lot to do here. I, I actually, uh, learned the absolute truth of when you're sick, you must rest during the big move. Cause I actually got pneumonia, which totally set me back last fall. And you know how, uh, you know how your farm to-do list is never done. Yeah. And so my 2023 is probably gonna be dominated by two big things, which is I'm, I'm in the final stages of really working on the book with the help of a awesome editor mm-hmm. and, uh, and, having had eight years on my old farm to learn all the things I don't want. Hmm. I'm really excited to start this year uh, putting together 
a farm of the things that I really want, the things I know I want to do, the ways I do want to spend my time, um, even little things. Uh, my, I, I mentioned that story earlier of my poor nephew doing fencing on my old farm. And one of my biggest learning curves was figuring out how I wanted to manage all of my animals on pasture and, and things like that. And so having refined that many times over all these years, the amount of times I have put in fence posts and taken them back out, I do not want to count anymore. <laughs> I'm excited to do things in that realm and, and really set things up in a way that I am happy with that are workable. And, and for me, one of the things that's most important, whether it's my sheep or my horses or our two elderly pigs, um, is creating an environment that's, uh, enriching and, uh, comfortable for my animals. And, and that's something that I'm looking at, uh, whether it's a book I write or consulting of, of expanding that knowledge base, because there's lots of ways to keep animals and there's lots of good ways and there's lots of wrong ways. And, uh, I, I hope that I can come to a point where I can help others learn from my mistakes and, and the mistakes of others, because if we're going to raise animals, be it for food or pleasure, we have a responsibility to do, I believe, the best we can. Yeah. So what would your advice be for the next generation of farmers or people getting into farming? Scale slowly. <laughs> as exciting as it is to, you know, rush off and buy the Craigslist herd of sheep, pregnant mm-hmm. pig. Um, the the one thing I've learned in adding animals and subsequently having to subtract is being aware of the limitations of yourself, your facilities, and your land. Because when you overwhelm any one of those three it's going to get miserable for all involved. You, the animals, the microbes in your dirt (laughs) Mm -hmm. and fixing problems takes a whole lot more time than planning ahead and and knowing where you want to be. So fencing is a great example. I have, like I said, put in fencing and six months later ripped it all back out because that plan was not a good idea. And, um, some of that was stuff I probably could have figured out without making the mistake. And some of it wasn't, you just had to learn your own land. But I think the biggest piece of advice is don't rush. And the other biggest piece of advice is be, be totally okay with quitting. It is okay to say, I don't like this. This doesn't work here. This isn't making money. It, you aren't a failure. You tried an experiment you, you know, work through the hypothesis and it didn't work out and that's okay. That's normal. It's a great, that's how you grow. And on um, in farms, and I don't care if you are a farmer in 1880, 1980 or 2023, that's what we do. We experiment, we learn and we move on. And it doesn't, and I, I, I really struggled with that at first. I didn't, I would hang on to things like I'm not a quitter. I will not fail at this, even though I was so unhappy doing it. um because I I I had you know built an image of myself that only I was you know I was only responsible to myself for that image I'd created um and I I had kind of a brain flip uh in how I viewed it and you know view things as an experiment and I even use it in my professional life it's one of the big culture changes we are working on um within my professional world is be okay to fail and and failing is a good thing because you learn from it and and the worst thing you can do is be failing and absolutely refuse to recognize it's not working (laughs) 
that's a pride thing then not not that's not some it's pride getting in the way of growth interesting I love that so what do you think is the hardest part of farming for noobs to learn balance Mm. it's really easy to go buy 50 chickens right (laughs) get all the facilities and the feed and stuff Mm -hmm. but finding a way to fit that into your life as you know your off-farm job your other chores you have to do your family you need to take care of Mm -hmm. I think I I don't think there's any way to learn some of that balance but to try and, and also to learn yourself you know what I'm okay sacrificing when I'm not okay sacrificing but balance, balance is really hard because, um, and also being really aware of, I mentioned lamnesia, that your farming world is not, oh, I mean, I know some professional worlds are like this, but every day is going to be different. Every season is going to be different. And you need to be um, really aware of the statement of, you know, this is really hard and I'm sleepless right now this is really hard and it's hot doing chores right now. You know, it's miserable and cold and I don't want to go move bales today, but that's just right now. Because if you get all wrapped up in, this is awful. You're sometimes going to lose that long-term perspective and, and realize that once the lambs are in the, on the ground and they're playing in the pasture and um, it's okay again, because farming is different every day no matter what you're doing, it's, and, and having that long-term perspective of what does this look like over the course of my year versus what does this look like on, you know, February 2nd when it's 10 below zero um, is a perspective to keep in mind. I don't think you should be so hard on yourself for giving up on things or trying really hard. You certainly have some very unique solutions for some interesting problems. Some of them I would not have thought of myself bringing the rooster inside to be my house rooster when it's too cold for him. I don't know that I would have thought of that. I don't know that I should have thought of that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So, wow. Um, I got to tell you, this has been super fun. I really appreciate the perspective. Um, Thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How can our listeners keep up with you and support you in what you're doing? Well, the main farm page is DelarnaFarm.com. You can also find the farm and on Instagram and Facebook. If you're into podcasting, uh, which I assume you are, if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, uh, podcasts. Uh, my friend Eliza Blue and I have a podcast that talks more what we touched on a little here about that kind of intersect between uh, mental health and farming life and how the chaos kind of makes us sane sometimes. Nice. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, my goal is by November 1st, you should be able to find my book on Amazon. And if you follow the farm pages, you'll know all about it there. Does it have a name yet? Does it have a title yet? does not have a title yet i have playing the juggling game this is i can do branding for anyone else and give great names but when i have to name my own things i'm a total disaster (laughs) is it going to be a collection of essays or a novel um it's it's a it's nonfiction. it's a collection of farm stories but Mm intersected with some useful bits of knowledge that i hope uh both city people farm people are newer professional can uh, get some use from that's fantastic. So how long have you been collecting all these items that you're putting into this book? Well, um, so the base of the book was me taking all the many, many stories I have published on my Facebook page, which uh, my writing process is literally something weird happens. 
and I get into bed at night. And if people follow the page, you'll notice most of my posts are like nine to 10 at night. Cause that's literally me laying in bed with my phone, telling you the weird crap that happened that day. And it's just stream of consciousness writing. So I'm, I'm taking all these random stories, which when I, um, edited the first seven years of farm life down came to something like 220,000 words, which was like, Oh my gosh, I wrote like six books, but they're not books. So that's a problem. <laughs> um, which is where good editors are your friend. And, uh, it, it will be a lot of, uh, farm stories. People have heard some, they haven't, and a little bit of extra thrown on top. Well, it sounds fantastic. And I can't wait. Um, can it be pre-ordered or you're not there yet? We're not there yet, but uh, we will be here soon. All right. When you are able to pre-order, please, please reach out to me and I'll make sure that I'll promote it too. I will and do that. Make sure, yeah. Let's, let's get your numbers up so that you can sell this stuff. All right. Um, it has been fantastic. And thank you so much for this discussion. Thank you so much for having me.